0: Last week, we saw Christ as the priest who gives us bread and wine, and that, we saw that foreshadowed by Melchizedek's gift of the same to Abraham. And that scene from Genesis 14 and those gifts were connected to the text I want us to look at this morning. It's it's the well-known and quite long discourse of Jesus on the bread of life. So we're in the middle of a series on the Lord's Supper, and this is obviously a relevant and important discourse concerning that theme. So to keep this manageable, we will look at this, Lord willing, in two parts. The first part today, and Lord willing again, the second part next week. So with that, today we'll make two points. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. Uh, The giver of bread and the bread itself. The giver of bread and the bread itself. So first, the giver of the bread. What's happened here is Jesus has just fed the 5,000. And this text is really, in one sense, an explanation of that. Right? Uh, and the crowds kind of scramble to catch up to him after that. They chase him around the lake. There's an intervening incident. But in any case, when they finally catch up to him, they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus decides... That's not the question he wants to talk about or answer. And so instead, he wants to unmask their motivations. And he wants to kind of redirect the whole question. Right? He says, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. So, so the, the force of what Jesus is saying here is this. You're looking for me... Not because you understood the significance of the signs. Not because you really grasped what the feeding of the 5,000 was about. But because you have a materialistic, worldly conception of the kingdom. Bread and power. He can make bread, let's make him king. Oh, he can do miracles, let's chase him around. And so what Jesus decides he's going to do here is he's going to direct them and direct us to a different kind of bread. And he says something that we've all heard a hundred times. It sounds almost absurd to say this. Don't work for the food that perishes. I'm assuming many of you spent many hours this week working for the food that perishes. It seems like that's pretty much all we do, Jesus. But he starts off by telling these people who've gone out of their way to get to him. It wasn't like he was down in the parking lot. He's around the other side of the lake, and they're chasing him, and they're getting up to him. And he's like, don't work for the food that perishes. Now, of course, he doesn't mean one shouldn't earn a living. But he is making a contrast. And he puts the contrast absolutely. He often does this, right? He doesn't doesn't do what you might think a sensitive pastor would do. Like, he doesn't say, now look, I know, of course, you have to labor in your vocations. And there's a whole theology of vocation. And you should work very hard for the food that perishes. You should be a wonderful employee. And you should do this because labor, labor is rooted in creation, right? And blah, 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 blah. And of course, while you're laboring, you should also consider heavenly things. Right? He doesn't do any of that. He just says, don't do this, do that. Like he's trying to get your attention. So... Don't work for the earthly bread, he's saying. This is his point. He puts the point absolutely. He puts it starkly. Don't work for earthly bread. Your labor should be for some other kind of bread. Well, that just doesn't even seem practical. It doesn't even seem plausible. It seems ridiculous. The crowd is pursuing, with all their energy and labor, earthly food. They just got a bunch of earthly food, right? That's why they're chasing Jesus around. So Jesus perceives that they, like we, have what I like to call an order and proportion problem. Right? They're consumed with earth, not heaven. They're consumed with this age, not the age to come. And they're consumed with this food of this age, and not food of the age to come. And so he says, stop with the food of this age. Worry about the the food of the age to come. He wants to talk with the masses. About food of a different order. Heavenly food. Right? But nobody he's talking to. Like, subscribes. To the eschatological food network. There is no eschatological food network. There's just 37 earthly food networks. Work for the food instead he says. That endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. So there's another kind of food which doesn't perish. You should be working for that. Jesus is the giver of the bread, the bread that he says here endures unto eternal life. The other bread spoils, right? And it can only nourish earthly life for a little while. That's why undue focus on earthly feasting is so misguided. But the crowds love this earthly bread. I mean, you'd have a big following today among conservative evangelicals if you could put on a fellowship meal for 5000 with one person. That beats a rock band. So they have a fixation, right? A fixation on miracles, and the resultant earthly food, as we have here, is actually corrosive. It undermines serious faith. It's earthly-minded, and we who are to be heavenly-minded live by heavenly food. So Jesus says, work, work. You know how you work for your earthly food? Work that way for this heavenly food. And so the crowd says, they're tracking a little bit. They're tracking a bit. They say, well, what must we do then? What works does God require us to do if we have to work for the heavenly food? Right? Just tell us what the works are, and we'll get to it. There's an amazing naivete here, right? Like an incredible overconfidence about their own ability. And Jesus says the work of God is this. Believe in the one he has sent. As if if to say, look, it's a free meal, folks. You're not going to be able to buy this. It's an insult to him to think you can merit This And it's hubris and pride on your part, he says to them. What is required, the work, the thing you must do, is faith in the one that the Father has sent. This is in part why the church requires a profession of faith before coming to the supper. You must have faith to eat the heavenly bread. Covenant membership is not enough. Why? Well, Jesus is talking to members of the covenant here. These are all circumcised Israelites. I mean, there may be a few few others in there, but it's largely a covenant crowd. You must have faith to eat the bread, which that table signifies. And faith here, notice this, faith has concrete content. Believe in the one the Father has sent. By the way, this is not equal to believing in Jesus, right? Mormons believe in Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus. There's millions of people who believe Jesus died for their sins, but they don't believe Jesus is the eternal Son of the Father sent from heaven. There's no credible confession of faith in Jesus Christ, which is not also at least a minimalistic profession in the Trinity. There's no detached Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, believe in Jesus. He says, believe in the one, the Father. What Father? The eternal Father of the Son. So this statement turns out to be enormously important for understanding what comes later in the discourse. We are going to see that eating and drinking, Jesus' body and blood, for example, are metaphors for faith. For Trinitarian faith, for coming to Jesus as the sent Son of the Father for life. Right? So get this right this much right now. Eating and drinking are metaphors for lively, informed faith. So again, the crowds, the crowds are not wired for this, right? Because they have a fixation with earthly eating and drinking. Right? And a fixation with earthly eating and drinking such as we have with our 37 food networks, would be to make the same mistake the crowds make here. They don't understand spiritual eating by the mouth of faith. So let me reiterate. The thing God requires, the work required to partake of the food of eternal life, is living Christ-centered faith. Faith in Christ as the Son sent into the world, the pre existent Son sent by the Father. So the crowd says, Okay, give us a sign that we might believe. Jesus has told them what they, they have to believe. Now they want to, you would think the feeding of the 5,000 would be enough, but they want another sign. They think Jesus might be some kind of second Moses. So, so they bring up you know Moses in the wilderness and they got bread. Our ancestors ate manna. right? So they're saying to Jesus something like, look, if you're greater than Moses, do a greater miracle. We got bread from heaven from Moses. This seems to be their thought. The loaves that you made, Jesus, were nice, but they didn't drop down from heaven. We want a greater sign than the one we just saw. Think of the hubris of this, right? We want a greater sign. And Jesus responds like this. He says, it's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. It's my father who gives you the true bread. Notice that the manna is kind of almost, if Jesus is the true bread, we don't want to say the manna is the false bread, but it's provisional bread. right? It's anticipatory bread. It's a shadowy bread which points to the true, the authentic, the final bread from heaven, which Jesus himself is. The bread of God which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. That's what they want. That's what I am. They're still confused. They say, sir, great, great. Always give us this bread. So they get the fact that Jesus is somehow the giver of bread but they miss the fact that he's alluding to himself as the true bread. I'm the bread of God who gives life to the world. That, that, they can't assimilate it, right? When people tell us stuff that we're not ready for, we can't assimilate it, right? We can hear the same thing 50 times, right? We just can't assimilate. They can't assimilate this. And so that brings me to the second point, which is the bread itself. So because the people and crowds are this way, right? They're, they're dense, right? Jesus puts it bluntly. He doesn't often do this, but he does it here. He says, I'm the bread of life. And we talk, we talk a lot about bread. Let me, just, let me just disperse any confusion. I'm the bread. I'm the gift, and I'm the giver. Whoever comes to me, he says, will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. Recall, again, Jesus said faith is required to get this bread. And here faith is... Coming to Jesus, right? A living act of turning to him for perpetual nourishment, for refreshment. It is believing in Jesus. It's appropriating Jesus. Faith is an act of total self-commitment, and without this faith, it's impossible to be pleasing to God. With this faith, though, when we come, one is fed in their soul. Ultimately, Jesus says, if you come, With true God-given faith, you will never hunger and thirst again. It turns out the crowd is still not tracking. (laughs) But Jesus and his Father are not thwarted. He doesn't think, wow, this is a frustrating discourse. There's a transition here. It's very abrupt. And again, it's important to get why he would do this. In verse 37, he says this. All those that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. It's an unambiguous statement of divine election. This in the middle of a discourse on the bread of life. Namely, he says, there is a people chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and those people, Unlike much of the current audience Jesus is addressing, will come to me. Will have the kind of faith I'm talking about. They will understand that I'm the son of the Father, sent into the world. They will come to me. They will look to me. They will appropriate me. Many are called. Few are chosen. All the Father gives will come. There's not one who will not come. All those that the Father gives will come to me, and whoever comes to me, Jesus says, I will never drive away. The Father gives, the Son keeps and guards, and He takes personal responsibility for the full and final salvation of every last one of His sheep. Every last one the Father has given to Him. Because He says, I've come to do the Father's will. And His will is that I lose zero, I lose none of those that the Father has given to me. And not only that, I will raise them up on the last day in glory because I keep them. It is a strange thing to insert into a dialogue on the bread of life. We will see, I think, some of the reasons Jesus is doing this. So in verse 40, he says, The Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, notice that, looks to, it's a kind of discernment, and believes in him, has eternal life, and is raised up by Jesus on the last day. So let me talk a little bit about this faith. We've seen that God requires faith. But notice the faith, it's been unpacked, it's flowered here in this text. It's been called believing on Jesus. It's been called coming to Jesus. Here it's called looking to Jesus. Having a kind of discerning vision, a kind of illumination about who he is. And notice also... As careful readers of the Gospels, we should be attuned to this kind of thing. Jesus here does something that we don't do instinctively. He says, whoever comes to me, I will bless and sanctify and send you out into the world, and I'll do this for you, and that for you, and this for you, that, and I'll do all these Christian things, and you'll be an effective Christian. He, he, he skips all of that. He goes right to the eschaton. Whoever comes to me, I will raise him up on the last day. What, what's with that? What happened to the Christian life? What happened to everything in between? Why does Jesus do that? Well, because he understands one thing. Faith is a kind of regeneration. Faith is ordered to the eschaton. The eschaton is relevant from the inception of the Christian life. Because faith is itself a resurrection out of dead, and it's the beginning of and the guarantee of being raised on the last day. Right? That feast is important only because it points to the eschatological feast of the kingdom. Your faith is significant only because it's the very beginning of the regeneration of the cosmos and the end of the world. We are already participating in the eschaton, and so Jesus can say, whoever comes to me, I will raise him up on the last day. So I'm going to stop and ask a question, because there may be some perplexity here. (laughs) After all, we're talking, at least we were talking, it seemed, about the bread of life. And then suddenly Jesus decides, you know what? I'd like to talk about eternal election for a while. I mean, that's just not, that doesn't seem intuitive. Why is he doing this here? Well, this may be offensive. It's always offensive, this doctrine to some. But he's saying only the elect, only those with this kind of faith, eat the bread of life. The masses do not eat the bread of life simply because they're in the covenant. Jesus is fencing the table, in a sense, here. He he does this all the time, right? He has a whole crowd following him, and he turns around and says, Hey, listen, if you're not willing to take up your cross and die as a martyr, stop following me. If you're not willing to do this, stop coming. Jesus is constantly turning to the crowds and thinning them out, challenging them, right? He starts talking about election, Well, they are the elect people. They don't get; they're not going to get to eat the bread of life just because they're chasing Jesus around and they're circumcised and they're the descendants of Abraham. It isn't their birthright. God can raise up sons from of Abraham from these stones. This is why He interrupts a discourse on the bread of life to talk not about the covenant but about election. The significance of this is far-reaching. He he talks not only about election, but about the visible sign of election, namely faith. Election has fruit. You can, Peter says, make your calling and election sure. Paul knows that a people are elect because they respond to the gospel. Our confessions teach that you can have full assurance, infallible assurance of your faith. You can know your election. You can make it sure. And thus the church looking for signs of election, before she admits people to the supper, is engaging in a profoundly fitting response to this very discourse. So what's the response to this by the Jews, by the crowd? Well, they grumble. They don't like it. As Israel in the wilderness grumbled, they grumble. They grumble. He's claiming to be the bread of heaven, and we know who his parents are, and from their point of view, it seems impossible that he could be the bread of heaven. And then Jesus tells them, stop grumbling, and then what does he do? He doubles down on the election part. Because it appears they don't want to hear this thing about God's sovereign electing grace. What they want to hear is, you're in the covenant, you're good to go. And he says this, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And by the way, drawing here is a powerful word. It means being dragged against your will. Right? The Father mightily and effectively has to incline hardened wills and hearts to turn them to Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says in verse 45, In the New Covenant, he says, And here he cites Isaiah. He says, everyone will be taught by God. Ultimately, in the end, in the new covenant, there is nobody who is not elect. There are not even teachers. Everyone, he says, without exception, from the greatest to the least, will know the Lord and be taught by God. It's written in the prophets, Jesus says. This This is what the prophets are talking about. Here, let me say something that should cause your reformed ears to tingle. No one is in the new covenant because they are born into a Christian family. That should get your attention. No one is in the new covenant because they're born into a Christian family. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean this. Jesus is speaking eschatologically here. So let me restate the truth of what he's saying in verse 45. He says this. In the eschaton, those who are in the new covenant are the elect and the elect only. There are, Jesus says, no unbelievers, no one who has not been taught personally by God among the people in the end. This is what the prophets spoke of when they spoke of the messianic glory. Think of this, right? At the wedding supper of the Lamb... How many covenant members will there be who are unbelievers? Zero. There'll be zero people who are merely covenant members. That's not true at this table. For now, there are unbelievers. For now, the number of people in the covenant professing believers and their children is larger than the number of the elect. Not everyone in here is elect. So why is this important? Why why is Jesus citing Isaiah 54 here? They shall all be taught of God. Because he's sifting and testing his own covenant people with respect to their living faith on feeding on the bread of life. That's why. He's saying, look, in the covenant, yes, of course, you're born into it but you're going to be sifted and tested so that finally the only people in the covenant are the purified, redeemed elect of God. And we're in that process in this period of time, Jesus says. So don't be chasing me around thinking you can have the bread of life because you're Jewish. I mean, it's quite a remarkable discourse. The supper is a lot of things. And one thing it is, It's not only this, but it is this. It is a sifting ordinance. It is a unique intrusion of the eschaton to refine and remove the dross so that that table might approximate the coming supper of the Lamb, right? Where those and only those given by Jesus to the Father eat. This age is the time of sifting and testing for the church. And the table is an instrument of sifting. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul cites the text from Exodus 16 that was read today. In 1 Corinthians 11, the sifting sanctions here are so serious that people are sick and dying. The table is a unique intrusion of the eschaton. So again, it's profoundly fitting for the church to look for faith as the fruit of election before admitting people to the table. Everyone, Jesus says, who has heard from the Father and learned from the Father comes to him. Right? Who is the bread of life, who gives eternal life. So I'm going to close and make a couple brief applications. I'm going to call them sacraments. Presumption and satisfaction. So, first sacraments. Even assuming, let's just assume, as some hold, that John 6 is not even about the Lord's Supper. There are commentators who think that. But what is clear is that the Lord's Supper is about the realities of John 6. Jesus may not be directly addressing the supper in John 6, but the supper is about John chapter 6. Because the supper is about how we eat and who eats the bread of life. And notice this, just for now, just notice this. We're going to take the second part of this, Lord willing, next week. Eating and drinking have not yet been mentioned. Right? We're 48 verses into this discourse. What has been mentioned, faith and its equivalents have been mentioned a half a dozen times. So living, personal faith is what governs the idea of eating and drinking, not the other way around. Right? As the Reformed have always said, this, the supper is not a converting ordinance. Right? The gospel converts people. The supper does not do that. The supper nourishes faith. So living, personal. Personal faith. What does that entail? Just from this discourse, it entails this. Hearing from the Father. Learning from the Father. Knowing Jesus as the Son of the Father sent into the world. Looking to Jesus. Coming to Jesus. This governs eating and drinking. And it's that kind of faith that the supper seals. Right. This is why we believe the sacraments are seals to our faith. So that's important to keep in mind as we come to the table. The second thing is presumption. I've already said something about this, right? He's he's rebuking the presumption of the crowds. They had had some kind of faith. They had a couple things, right? They had covenant membership, they had circumcision, they had some kind of faith, they had some sort of commitment. Jesus fed them the 5,000 loaves, they chased them around the lake. They had some interest, they wanted the free bread. But they didn't truly believe. Jesus was doubtful about their faith. He doesn't say to them, look, it's fine. The bread of life is for, you know, everybody in the covenant. Instead, he says this. Only those given to me by the Father, only those who've heard from the Father, learned from the Father, seen me, come to me and believe in me, only they have eternal life. Only they partake of the bread of life. To come some other way is to just eat and drink judgment on yourself, Paul says. It's a rebuke of presumption. Jesus, as I said, is always doing this to the crowds. But it's important to get this, right? It is not meant to drive you to despair. Whoever comes to him, he will keep. He will not cast out. So what's your response? Come to him. Look to him. Feed on him. Learn from the Father. Feed on him by faith. Perpetually, faith is the mouth which grasps Jesus Christ. And if you do that, know that it is the Father that has given you, the Father that has drawn you to the Son, right? Perpetual, dependent faith precludes presumption. Finally, satisfaction. Why this discourse? I mean, why is Jesus referring to himself as the bread of life? Well, I think we all know, right? It's because he wants to nourish us. He wants to satisfy us. He wants to cause us to prosper and flourish as human beings. Outside of him, there is no satisfaction. Because all other food is dying. You leave the groceries out. You turn the refrigerator off, and you'll see, right? It's just corruption, death, decay. Adam ate in rebellion, and now all eating is tied up with the curse. All eating is tied up with the curse. They're bound up with death. Food is cut off from its life source. It's dying. Dying people eat dying food, and they keep dying, so they have to eat more dying food. That's why we cannot get lasting satisfaction from earthly feasting. Yes, we can get some satisfaction. I'm not saying you can't have any satisfaction. Parties have a certain satisfying dimension to them, but any astute person knows that's not really what I wanted or what I want. Right? Yes, we have imperfect and partial happiness, but lasting deep satisfaction cannot be found apart from face-to-face communion with God because you were made to see God. We spend our whole lives, you know, trying to wring some satisfaction out of these other things, right? And as you get, if you're young in here, you may have no idea what I'm talking about. But as you get older, you realize, well, you know, none of this other stuff's going to work. What I really need is to be raised from the dead in immortal glory and see the face of the triune God. That'll work. What else is going to work exactly? So, because you're created, as Augustine said, right? Your heart is made for him. And that means you're made to eat and drink with him to commune with the Holy Trinity in glory. Thus, only that bread and that wine is without any qualifiers the bread of life. There's no caveats to that, right? When someone hands you some food or drink at a party... Right? And they say, this is fantastic stuff. It's A-grade stuff. It's really tremendous. Right? You should think, in the back of your mind, there should be like an asterisk. Like, I always receive this stuff with a big asterisk. It's a little footnote. It just says, yeah, this is still part of the dying food that dying people eat and have to eat more dying food because they keep on dying. The best thing it could be, the best thing it could be is a faint pointer to the glorious feast which is to come. That's the best thing it could be. I might drink too much, I might drink too little, I might eat too much, I might get indigestion, I might have a headache. So, there's only one thing we can point to and say, that's the bread of life. The bread which destroys death. Right, what the Father's call the medicine of immortality. So what does this discourse say to us? It's simple, really. Come in faith, look to, see, believe in, Let yourself hear from, learn from the Father. For that is eating the bread of life. Now, we can see this next week, but there's so much emphasis on faith here that some people will think the sacrament's not even necessary, or the sacrament's just a trivial addendum. We don't say that. But it's very important to see that Jesus has not said a word about eating or drinking but he said a ton about repenting and believing. So let us be people who repent, who believe, who come to him. Because the form of eating is the mouth of faith grasping Christ, panting for Christ. And be encouraged by this. The one that you come to, Jesus, he has taken full, final personal responsibility for your salvation. It's very un-American, right? Like, your salvation is not in your own hands. He has full responsibility for it. If it was up to us, we would lose it. He who is the bread of indestructible life, then, as you come to him, know this, he will raise you up on the last day, right? For faith is the foretaste of that indestructible life. Amen.